everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. I am so thrilled to be here on what is going to be a fantastic show. We got a jam-packed show. First, we're going to be speaking to Brazilian journalist Mariana Chimoes. She's going to talk to us about Lula, Bolsonaro, what just happened in Brazil, what's going to happen. Then we're going to be joined by Ali Vargas from Cassetron News. He's a Bolivia-based journalist, and he's going to talk to us about the election in the kind of larger context of what this means for Latin America. As always, I want to invite everyone, I encourage everyone to like the stream. It's a great way to support the show and also make sure that people watch it. It helps with the algorithm. So whatever you're doing right now, just do a little like, hit the like, the thumbs up. Also, if you haven't already, please subscribe. To do that, you just hit the subscribe button and then you hit the bell. That way you don't miss any of these streams and you don't miss any of the clips that we release. Also, if you can, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And you get extended interviews and all sorts of great bonus content. And you can also join on YouTube. You can become YouTube members. And when you do that, you get cool badges and emojis, including Bodhi emojis. Also want to tell everyone that I will be doing a call-in right after this chat. We'll be doing a call-in. And call-in is a free app that you can access on your phone. And that's where I take your guys' questions and comments. So that's really fun. It's a great community. In fact, I did an interview with this guy who's great, Miko Pellet. You guys probably remember him from the show. He's an amazing Israeli-American human rights activist, the author of the great book, The General Son, A Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. He's the son of a very decorated Israeli general. He's the grandson on the other side of a signatory to Israeli independence. And he's a major anti-Zionist, and he is a one-state solution supporter. I did an event with him in Washington, D.C. I interviewed him at this really cool cafe bookstore called Bus Boys and Poets. That was great. And I met people who I've met through Colin, so that was cool. Kind of a interesting uh, opportunity on Colin. It creates like a, you know, you get to talk to people, which is really cool. So I do that after almost every stream that I do. Also, speaking of Miko Pellet. I'm doing a live taping of the Katie Halper Show. I haven't done this since before the pandemic. I'm doing a live taping of the Katie Halper Show. Tuesday, November 15th at 7 p.m. at the People's Forum. I'm going to be interviewing Miko Pellet, and I'll be asking him all sorts of questions that we didn't get to when I had him on this show about the book, about his relationship with Netanyahu, with Bibi Netanyahu, who he knows personally. And that, again, is November 15th at the People's Forum. That's in Manhattan. And the People's Forum is located at 320 West 37th Street. Again, that's 320 West 37th Street. So I'll be there. Miko will be there. He'll be signing books. It's great. Um, Okay, so before we bring on our guests, you know, keeping it real, keeping it uh, 100, keeping it Israel-Palestine, I thought we could watch a clip from a good friend of the show, Case Study QB. So Case Study QB has a really interesting clip that he posted. It's from NBC. So Brad, if you will please do us the honors of bringing up that clip. 
Well, the midterms are just one week away here in the U.S. Voters in Israel are already casting their votes today. This is the fifth election the country is holding in less than four years, and early polls show former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu may have a chance to reclaim the position he lost just one year ago. NBC News foreign correspondent Raf Sanchez joins us now from Jerusalem for more on these elections. Raf, good morning. Stephen, good morning. Polls are showing Netanyahu's right-wing Likud party is likely to win the most votes in this election. But to actually form a majority government, they're going to need the support of smaller parties. And so Netanyahu has made a deal with a far-right party known as Jewish Power, which is surging in this election. He said he's prepared to give them cabinet posts in return for their support in parliament. And that is a deal that is causing a lot of alarm here in Israel, but also in the U.S. Benjamin Netanyahu back on the campaign trail and looking to mount a political comeback. I'm the opposition leader and maybe in two weeks I'll replace this government, I hope. Despite Of course, Benjamin Netanyahu has been doing a full court press. We saw and we talked about and reacted to his appearance on Bill Maher, where Bill Maher gave him such a softball interview. It was really disgusting because Netanyahu not only is running for elections again, trying to become the prime minister once again, but he also has a memoir to push. Despite being on trial for criminal corruption, charges he denies, polls show Netanyahu and his right-wing allies slightly ahead of Israel's liberal bloc, led by centrist prime minister Yair Lapid. But in his ambition to win an overall majority, Netanyahu has made a pact with Israel's extreme right. Netanyahu's allies, the far-right Jewish power party, are holding a rally here in Tel Aviv tonight. But across the street, there are dozens of anti-racist protesters demonstrating against them. Far-right parties may win more than 10% of the seats this election. And in return for their support, Netanyahu says he's prepared to give a cabinet post to this man, Jewish power's leader, Itamar Ben-Gavir. Ben-Gavir was convicted in magistrate's court 15 years ago for inciting racism and supporting a terrorist group while carrying anti-Arab signs at a protest. Last month, he pulled a gun in a confrontation with Palestinians, he says, in self-defense. One of his key policies, expelling Palestinian citizens of Israel he deems disloyal to the state, including some Arab members of Israel's parliament, known as the Knesset. We asked his spokesman about that policy. Now remember, this guy who we're about to hear from is not a critic of Israel. He is a right-winger, extreme right-winger. He's a spokesman for this extreme right-winger, this guy from Jewish Power, who's been arrested for inciting violence. So let's hear what he has to say about the way things work in Israel. What Ben Gvir is doing is bringing just more balance, counterbalance to the Knesset by being a party that's like, we've got terrorists in our Knesset. Here's, here's a nationalist party that's going to counterbalance that. So he's talking about expelling Arab politicians who are democratically elected, some of whom even say this is a Jewish state. Is that democracy? Expelling people who disagree with you? Thing, first thing I want to say is that, is that Israel is first and foremost a Jewish state and it's here created to defend the Jewish state. It's not really created to be a democracy. Among the okay, so we just had a an Israeli quote unquote pro Israeli guy, right winger, say Israel is first and foremost a Jewish state. It's not really created to be a democracy, which is funny because that's what a lot of critics say. But this guy just said the quiet part out loud because in Israel, what's interesting is that in Israel, right wing Zionists are much more honest than they are in this country because we have to try to in the United States, people have to try to like weave in 
their support of Zionism within a more liberal framework. And in Israel, they don't have to do that. So it's like, fine. Arab lawmakers Ben Gavir is threatened to expel is Ahmed Tibi. When he is talking about me and my colleagues uh, expelling them to Syria or to Gaza, he is thinking about the whole Arab minority. Netanyahu's liberal opponents say he's brought the far right into the mainstream. There's no far right without Netanyahu in Israel. Netanyahu did not respond to a request for comment, but has previously said the far right would be full and respected partners in government. But in Washington, alarm bells even among supporters of Israel. Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman saying these extremists undermine Israel's interests and the U.S.-Israel relationship. A former prime minister on the cusp of returning to power. But at what cost? Now, the State Department says it is up to the voters of Israel to choose their next government, and they're not going to comment on the far right. But if Jewish power does get into the next Israeli cabinet, the Biden administration is going to have some difficult choices of its own, including will U.S. officials sit down with people who have such a history of extremism? Stephen? Yeah. Is that really a question? Anyway, so that's interesting. It's interesting when people say things that, again, wouldn't be said by most pro-Israel Americans. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. Shout out to Case Study QB for for that clip. And we're just going to keep the show going because we got a lot of show to get to. Please remember that you can become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Please remember we're doing a live taping on November 15th, Tuesday, November 15th at the People's Forum. And please welcome onto the virtual stage. We are bringing on Mariana Shimoes, who is an independent journalist. She was with the Brazilian outlet Agencia Pública. She's also worked with the New York Times, The Economist, Al Jazeera, Hyperallergenic, and other places. So welcome, Mariana. Hello. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. Thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. Although this election was pretty intense, so I've been talking about it nonstop. Oh, well, thank you for talking about it with us as well. Happy to. So tell us what happened. Just walk us through what happened, how we got from the initial round of the elections to where you are today. So this was a very complicated election. Um, for people that don't know, you brought up Netanyahu and uh, Bolsonaro, who was the person running for president um, this term again. He um, is the current president of Brazil, and he's actually friends with Netanyahu. He um, is somebody who's an extreme right leader, and he's also a former army captain. So that's important to know going into this. Um, and he was going against Lula, uh, Luiz Inácio da Silva, which is a leftist president who used to be president of Brazil a while back. And he was ousted, his party was ousted from power um, thanks to a movement that was started under Bolsonaro. So that's a little bit of context about how intense this election was in terms of polar opposites running for office right now. Um, and so I guess I could tell you a little bit about the outcome. So the election was intense because Lula won the first round with 57.2 million votes and Bolsonaro had 51 million votes. And then Bolsonaro had to basically win over 6.2 million votes in order 
to make it in the second round. So we just had that second round and Lula won by a hair. He basically won by 2 million votes in the end. In a very big country. In a very big country, yeah. So it was a very small margin. Now, why did Lula win? Why was he able to win? And why was it so close? It was very close because Bolsonaro was able to flip votes in the second round. So mind you, the first round happened in the beginning of October and the second round happened in the end of October. So during those three weeks, he had to flip over those 6.2 million votes and get people on his side. And he was able to do that. So it was pretty impressive that he closed that margin. As I said, um, there was a huge difference in the beginning and Lula was pulling ahead. Um, And Lula was pulling ahead because I think there's a lot of reasons that Bolsonaro is sort of not well seen in the country. Um, There's an increase in poverty in Brazil. Famine is back. There's a lot of issues. I think also the pandemic, mounting economic issues, all of that sort of contributed to people kind of wanting Lula to come back. Um, But Lula is somebody who's controversial. And the reason he's controversial is because he, during his terms in office, he, he served two terms, one in 2002 and then one in 2012. Um, during his time in office, he, was actually, he actually let a lot of corruption happen in the country, and he was actually imprisoned for that. Um, but then uh, <laughs> Brazilian politics are very complicated, I want to just say as a, as a little... Um, just, just so you know that it's, it's not easy. But yeah, so Lula is an ex-con, basically. He went to jail. He was jailed for this. However, um, there's a lot of belief that he was sort of, that there was a lot of... Corruption that went to his case, right? Yes, exactly. So there, the person who basically put him in jail um, sort of conspired with the judge. You know, there was a lot of dirty business surrounding the accusations so it's not, it, 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 in the end, it became clear that he was kind of, I don't want to say the word framed, but he was, it was, it was pinned on him that he was more corrupt than he let on. Although I will say that during his rule, a lot of corruption did happen in general in the country. So I think that um, it was a difficult time for Brazil. And I think people remember him as the leader that let a lot of corruption slide. With that being said, um, Bolsonaro's platform was that he was going to end corruption in Brazil, and he did not do that. He did not succeed. In fact, he was actually um, accused of corruption himself. So um, it's, as I said, it's complicated, but at the end of the day, you have um, two polar opposites And you had Bolsonaro at the end of that last stretch trying to get those votes away from Lula. And there was a lot of um, use of public funds and pulling every dirty trick in the book to sort of win those votes. So I will say that while it was impressive that he managed to, um, you know, close that gap of difference between um, him and Lula, he still lost. So despite pulling every dirty trick in the book, despite using a lot of public funds to try and win um, the election, he ultimately lost. So I think that's what was most impressive to people is that 
the force with that Lula has is superior and he was able to pull through in the end. And so what kind of public funds or dirty tricks did Bolsonaro engage in? Well, here's a good one. Um, so right before the second round, he started distributing government handouts to the population to win support. So that was pretty bad because he was saying he was it was it's it's basically like he's buying votes, right? And so and there was a lot of fake news that was coming out, you know. There was a lot of crazy stuff happening, but I think what what, what really did not help him um is that he one of his supporters who's this woman called Carla Zambelli, she's a congresswoman and she's one of his biggest allies in Congress. She pulled out a weapon at someone on the street. Um, this was a couple days before the election. And Bolsonaro has always been somebody who's supported guns. Um, he's a big fan of Donald Trump. Everybody knows that some people call him the tropical Trump. And he has always talked a lot about how he thinks Brazilians should have the same kind of gun culture that people have in the U.S., and that every Brazilian should be able to carry a weapon. So um, I actually think that this congresswoman pulling the gun out two days before the election hurt him uh, because it was an act of like sheer chaos. She just was insulted, felt insulted by somebody on the street. It's not clear what this person said to her. Uh, but when this happened, she pulled out a gun at this guy on the street, which is wild. So I have I, I sent you the clip if you want to show it. Why do they keep saying Azambelli? Zambelli's her name. Oh, okay. So they kept saying her name? Yeah. They were like, it's Zambelli, it's Zambelli, because that's her, her, her surname. Um, so she just pulled out a gun on that guy in the street. So, um, yeah, I guess that's just an example of how chaotic it got towards the end there. But I think it's pretty impressive that if you take into consideration that he spread a lot of fake news, that he used public funds and funneled them into the campaign, it was shocking that even with all that, he still lost, even though it was for, for like a really small margin, only those two million votes. He ultimately lost the election and was not able to pull through in the end. So people were really, you know, uh, and Lula said that in his speech when he accepted the win, he said, despite you know, him pulling Lula all the stops. Or Bolsonaro. Oh, when Lula, Lula sorry. Lula or, sorry Lula. Bolsonaro. Okay, got it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So when when he made his first speech, you know, accepting the um that he had just won the election, he accused Bolsonaro of, you know, using public funds to sort of in his election. And and so he said, despite all that, um, they tried, and he even used this term, he said, they tried to bury me alive. And I think he was referring to the fact that they um, 
pinned him for corruption. They put him in jail. They did all this stuff to sort of get him out of the political um, sphere. And yet he still survived. He still came out. Um, he was released and absolved of the crimes. And then he ran for president and won. Right. He also like wasn't allowed to go to his relatives' funerals when he was in jail. Yeah, it w- it was intense. He's a very he's a really charismatic person and a really big figure in Brazil. And the thing that people should also know about him is that he was known for bringing a lot of social programs to Brazil and for getting a lot of people out of poverty and out of hunger, and especially in the northeast of Brazil, which is the poorest, driest region of the country. So until this day, he has a lot of support in that area. And so Bolsonaro tried, tried, tried to get uh, people in the Northeast to switch over to his side, and he was unable to. So until this day, the Northeast is very much loyal to Lula. And what are some of the main differences in their, for instance, environmental policies between Bolsonaro and Lula? Oh, that's that's a that's a big one. <laughs> um, during the PT, which is Lula's party, because when he was out of office, there was also another president from the PT party that took over. Her name is Juma Hussef. And during her uh, rule, during her term in office, there was a huge decrease in deforestation in Brazil. So Brazil was known for having probably the the most preserved. The, I, I don't know how to put this in terms. Um, I guess it was Brazil was living a golden age of preservation in the Amazon. Let's put it that way. And so Bolsonaro was the complete opposite. And I've done a lot of reporting on environmental stuff, specifically in Brazil. And what we saw was a lot of deforestation and a lot of increase in crimes in the forest. So this area in Brazil is an area where you have a lot of different groups that are trying to make money and exploit the forest, right? Um, You have people that cut down and sell the wood. You have people that pollute the waters to take out minerals. You have everything you can possibly imagine. Um, And during Bolsonaro's rule, he basically said, we're going to turn a blind eye and we're not going to go after people who are committing these crimes. And so, you know, during that time, a lot of these crimes went up and the government agency that was responsible for keeping tabs on this and, you know, essentially um, writing down fines for people who are committing infractions, those... um, those fines were basically going down and the government agency was told you need to like not um, give out as many fines. You need to sort of pretend you don't see that this crime is happening. So that's basically what happened. A lot of the people who tried to go against the crime would get punished within the government organization. Um, I did a series about this. I did a story about this for Vice actually, where whistleblowers inside the agency came out and told me that they were being harassed. They were being threatened for doing their job, basically. Um, So during the Bolsonaro era, we had a really sad time for the Amazon. It was um, the polar opposite of what happened with Lula years. And I think people are now hopeful that the Amazon's going to get back, you know, that people are going to start protecting the Amazon again. Now, has Bolsonaro conceded yet? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, so today he did not, he, he said he wasn't going to concede and he didn't actually give a speech um, on the day of the election. 
but today, so this was, you know, two days after the election today in the afternoon, he finally came out in public. It was very odd actually, because he just stayed silent. Like right after the results came out, he just kind of stayed like barricaded himself inside the presidential palace um, and then went to sleep. And everyone was like, are you going to say something? And he just stayed quiet. So today he finally came out and said, you know, made this speech that was really fast. It was super quick. And all he said um, was, well, he said, he said two things. He didn't actually accept the results, but he did say that he had a transition team that was going to take over to transition. Um, they, they, they made that official. So technically it's happening. Uh, however, he, since the election, since the results came out, there have been these minor protests happening of uh, truck drivers who have always been really um, known for being Bolsonaro supporters. Uh, the truck drivers union is known to be very pro Bolsonaro. And these people are blocking certain roads in Brazil right now. And they are um, supposedly doing this to show their support for Bolsonaro, right? So he can, when he did his speech, he said he made like a kind of like allusion to this saying like, if you want to go out there and protest, you should protest, but you should do it peacefully, unlike the left, which is very violent. So that's what he said, um, which was a very kind of, in my opinion, I think he was um, saying, like, go ahead and protest, basically. And how has he been able to have loyalty from the truck drivers? He, from the beginning, did a pact with them and promised that he was going to, you know, if you if you support me, if your union backs me up during the election, this was like back in the 2018 election when he first won. He said that he was going to, you know, reduce gas prices and help these people and help them. Um, but that never really happened. And so and, and, and actually they were on his side from the beginning, because back in 2018, when uh, Juma Hussef, Lula's successor, was ousted, she was impeached. When all this corruption scandal came out, the thing I was talking about in the beginning with the corruption, um, she sort of paid the price for this and was ultimately impeached. So, um, although I have to say she was, there was never any proof that she was corrupt. Um, but anyway, she, during that time, her vice president came into power. And, and after he got into power, Bolsonaro, who was already starting to sort of form into the political persona that he is today, was siding with these truck drivers and they did a massive um, protest, a massive, not, not a protest, like a, how do you say, like a, like a strike, like a strike. So they did a strike and they basically blocked the roads and they said, unless you reduce the gas prices, we're not going to budge and you're not going to get your goods being delivered to your, your towns, which is huge in Brazil because unlike some other places where you have, you know, you're able to bring in goods through, um, other means you can bring them by train or what have you. Brazil really relies on the roads. And so the truck drivers were really able to like make a dent in the economy. Like people were not getting their food. Restaurants weren't opening. 
it was madness. And so they had like this huge political leverage at the time and Bolsonaro like capitalized on that, you know? So he sided with them and he's kind of using that right now. But we're seeing that um, inside the government, he does not have support. He pulled a similar thing that Trump pulled, which was he threatened to not recognize the results of the election. And he threatened to say that the election was fraudulent. But so far inside the government, his closest and most important political allies have like all recognized the election results. And as soon as the um, election was decided, these people came out and they said, you know, it's done. Like, the election results will be recognized. And so I think that really made him lose sort of his, um, you know, I think it kind of like isolated him. Yeah. And maybe that's why he was like hauled up in the palace and barricaded himself there, because I think he sort of felt like no one was going to back him up if he were to come out and say the results were fraudulent. All right. Well, thank you, Mariana. Any final words or thoughts? I guess I do want to say one more thing that I didn't mention before. Um, this, this election was historical in Brazil for two reasons. One is that it was the closest election in Brazilian history. Like it's never been this slim of a margin. And then the second reason that it's historical is that it's the first time that a president was not reelected for a second term in office. So Bolsonaro was unable to get reelected and that, that, that speaks volumes. Well, thank you, Mariana. Where can people find you and your work? You can find me on Twitter. I'm Mariana. I'm not as big of a Twitter person as you, Katie. <laughs> um, but I'm at Mariana Hebois Simois and Hebois spelled R-E-B-U-A. Cool. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. So bringing it on to the stream, our next guest, very excited to be talking to Ali Vargas, who is the co-founder of Casetron News, Ali Vargas. Welcome. Hello. Hello, Katie. Thanks for having me on again. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. So tell us your thoughts on this election, this historic election, and what it means for the rest of Latin America. And tell us your thoughts on Lula, because there's a whole debate on the left right now about how much of a leftist he is, whether he's a real leftist. Someone in the comments earlier on was like, he's a WEF guy, you know, World Economic Forum guy. One World Economic Forum guy beats the other World Economic Forum guy as if he and Bolsonaro are like not distinguishable. So what what say ye to all of these? Yeah, well, I remember when on the election night and we were, yeah, you know, informing, uh, reporting on the elections. We were getting loads of like quote tweets and replies with like a screenshot of uh, a supposed profile of Lula's on the World Economic Forum website because of the fact he's a he's a president. That he's the next president. That doesn't mean he's uh, part of you know a leader of the World Economic Forum. But Lula is definitely um, an interesting figure because he he himself defines as a socialist, um, and he ran you know part of his campaign was the participation of the communist party of brazil um so he has that alliance with parties to his left and he's happy to associate with them happy to be on a platform with them and bring uh elements of those groups as well in, in into government but he's also 
uh, willing to work with some of those to his right. So his vice presidential candidate, uh, Al-Kim, is someone from essentially a, center, a centrist party. Some even say centre-right. Um, so he's managed to reach across the you know all the different tendencies and bring together a coalition that could beat Bolsonaro. And I'd say a not insignificant chunk of his vote will be people who maybe don't identify as left, but who hate Bolsonaro more than they do uh, socialism, let's say. So that, I think, was an important part of his victory, um, you know, that we've just seen. But yeah, I think but there's a lot of important points of his agenda that will have an incredibly uh, serious impact on, Latin, on the Latin American left. Because Lula is someone, as we know from his first term in power, someone that does, does believe in Latin American unity, does believe in working with the other left-wing governments in Latin America, including Venezuela, uh, Cuba, etc. Of course, Brazil, you know, Bolivia, that's uh, where I'm talking to you from. We share a border with Brazil, a very large border. Uh, and there's been a number of, uh, you know, relations have broken down in a big way during Bolsonaro's time in power. And to the point where Bolsonaro, for example, helped, was a, was a big factor in the coup in Bolivia in 2019. And there's lots of people of the former regime that are hiding in Brazil still. So re-establishing those relations with countries like Bolivia, countries like Argentina, uh, where basically, you know, two of the biggest countries in Latin America who weren't speaking to each other this whole time now are going to have an extremely close relationship. We actually, like the first leader to visit Lula was the president of Argentina, Alberto Fernandez. I think we've got, we actually post about this, but it, it just shows the importance of this election for Latin America and a future of economic integration as well. Obviously, Brazil is an incredibly, it's, it's the largest economy uh, in Latin America, one of the most important economies in the world. And the fact that it is now uh, joining the vision of, uh, you know, Latin American economic integration is incredibly important. And Lula even, uh, during the campaign, hinted that he believes in creating a Latin American currency, a currency that can compete with the dollar and, and other international currencies, which is incredibly important because, uh, you know, for a lot of countries, they're at the mercy of dollar. They're, they're dollarized in some cases, or they are, you know, have currencies pegged to the dollar and to have a Latin American, to have trade done in Latin American currency rather than dollars. Um, that was a proposal of Lula during the campaign. I think we, we just published an article as well from, uh, Andres Arauz, the former presidential candidate in Ecuador, talking about, you know, how this needs to happen. You know, this needs to happen as soon as possible um, and explaining the ways in which that could happen. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is an incredibly, incredibly important turning point for, for Latin America. And can you talk, we're going to, I mean, I'm going to ask you more about the what this means for Latin America, but can you also just tell people about the way Lula was kind of set up through this car wash investigation yeah absolutely and uh, this was something that i think when we see the, when i see the election the coverage of this past election in foreign media say the guardian or new york times etc we're seeing a lot of like columnists talk about how this is incredibly important victory for democracy that bolsonaro lost um and that you know it's very positive that lula was able to win when those same outlets were propagating the, the the false news that Lula was involved in corruption. 
And this was goes back to a few years ago where he was sent to jail by a judge who then went on to become the Minister of Justice in Bolsonaro's government and who then left that government and ran himself as a candidate uh, in the election. So it, it shows, you know, the the level of judicial independence that he, he saw himself as an activist judge. And, uh, yeah, put Lula away on his trumped-up charges. And that narrative... Uh, both within Brazil and internationally, created this idea that the government of Lula's first government was corrupt. Um, and, you know, that, that I remember when there was the coup against Dilma, who's the president who came after Lula, um, you know, when there was protests by right-wing sort of middle-class groups in the streets, they'd hold up these big sort of giant balloons of Lula in, you know, sort of prisoner sort of striped outfits and things. And that was their their reasoning, their justification to launch the legislative coup against the PT government and usher in, you know, before Bolsonaro, remember those two years of the president called Mikhail Temer, right, you know, neoliberal figure. Uh, and that's where a lot of Brazil's economic problems started and the persecution and authoritarianism started. And then when Bolsonaro wins, that only intensifies. So there's, Lula was then obviously exonerated of charges after the uh, the election, uh, the, the you know the, le- the election that Bolsonaro won originally, and all the polls showed that if Lula had been able to stand then in 2018, he'd have won. He would have won because of how much of a popular figure he is. I think I remember that as well in, in Brazil. Um, you know, n- not necessarily all of the vote is for for the for the party, the Workers' Party. Uh, there's a huge personal vote for Lula because people remember his, his his last presidency, in which millions of Brazilians were lifted out of poverty. Um, you know, one of the largest, most rapid periods of poverty reduction of any Latin American country. So there's a huge amount of, of, of personal attachment to him and and what he did. So if he'd been able to stand, he, the Polshari would have won. But this judge, Sergio Moro, who went on to be Bolsonaro's justice minister, ensured that he couldn't run in that election. And they put up a guy called Fernando Haddad, which he, who, you know, who is a, a incredibly important figure within the PT, but which doesn't have that personal attachment to him in the way that Lula does. And people just love Lula, you know, like he's, yeah. he's a celebrity. If you see videos of him, like walking around at rallies, it's like, it's like he's, yeah, it's like a rock star. Um, like p- people are enchanted by him and his character. There's so many things about him people love, like the fact that he has four on the hands on his left hand. He has four fingers. Why? Because when he was a factory worker, um, he was in an industrial accident, and you know he couldn't afford proper medical attention, so they just cut it off basically. Now he only has four fingers. Uh, just small things like that, like endear him to people. So yeah, there's there's there's, there's a huge personal attachment to him. Hmm. And let's play the video of Lula and the president of Argentina. I just remember that the, the relations between Brazil and Argentina have been practically zero this time. 
um, which is which is bad for the whole of the continent because they're the two biggest economies in South America. And if they're not talking to each other, that's a problem. Um, and there's even been points of, of conflict sometimes. For example, uh, involving involving Bolivia. Bolivia sells gas, natural gas, to both of the both of those countries. And of course, now we're in an energy crisis. And during that time, the quota of gas that was sold to Brazil was reduced and increased for Argentina because the relation between Bolivia and Brazil got so bad um, this past few years, especially since the coup. And so that, you know, that... Uh, that's you know that sort of conflict is not good for for the region economically. And now we're, with there is a greater level of integration, everyone will win um, in that, in that situation. I want to share another image with you. This is something that Castetron News put on their Twitter, your website, put on their Twitter. Here it is. So Carolina Rivera Añez, daughter of Bolivia's ex-dictator Janine Añez, traveled to Brazil to meet with Jair Bolsonaro, thanking him for being attentive to her and her mother and delivering a letter penned by Janine in person. So, and it's really funny because then it says justice, which is a funny thing to think of them. This is just another example of Bolsonaro's like needless diplomatic missteps, both within Latin America and even like with the U.S., Look at what he did with the United States and Joe Biden. It's absolutely crazy. Like, I remember when Joe Biden was first elected, a lot of sort of analysts said that, oh, uh, he's going to clash. He's going to hold Bolsonaro to account on the uh, environment and uh, authoritarianism or whatever. That never happened. Biden was always wanting to uh, have Brazil as an ally, always reaching out uh, to Bolsonaro and Brazil. And what? how did Bolsonaro reply? He replied with, incredibly childish nonsense just openly supporting donald trump uh you know after biden had already taken power his sons who are you know incredibly uh, influential within the government were going around you know repeating the the stuff about the election being stolen away from trump by biden so w when you're going around saying things as serious as that that you know relations are, are gonna break down but I think if they hadn't, if he hadn't done that, if he just kept quiet, wherever his personal views, if he just kept quiet and worked with Biden, the United States could have could be helping him right now. He could be emboldened to say, "Oh, the, the election was fraudulent. The whatever the communists, Venezuela, the Castro Chavistas have stolen the election. We need to mobilize people." The United States, I think, the State Department could have supported him in the way that they did with Bolivia with that same line. Except why would they do that now? Why would the State Department help him after he has deliberately gone gone around promoting Trump, uh, just just practically insulting Biden on a lot of occasions, and even, you know, in the case of his sons, going as far as as, you know, holding events with Steve Bannon, talking about Biden stealing the election. He set he sabotaged himself there. Um he could have had the United States working with him and now they they didn't want they don't want to. And that picture we saw, uh, you know, needlessly sabotaging relations with a next door neighbor country that sells them gas during an energy crisis that has reduced the, the amount of gas they sell to, to Brazil precisely because of this stuff, precisely because of how relations have deteriorated um, just in a, such an open way where he's talking about, you know, where he gives refuge to for example, the defense minister of Bolivia under Añez, who led the massacres 
in uh, 2019 and openly bragging about it on his YouTube show. It, he just That was just last week. He was bragging about how he's giving refuge to all these people from the Agnes regime. And that, in fact, uh, was, uh, I think, just a couple of days ago, the Bolivian government now asking for his extradition. Just yesterday. Right. So now that guy's screwed now as well. He's going to have to either leave Brazil or, you know, just live with, kind of in hiding because now the incoming government is, uh, is almost certain to comply. Yeah. Speaking of his charisma, this is an amazing photo of Lula. <laughs> Young Lula. Young Lula, yeah. He's got an incredibly gruff voice as well. Yes. It's like probably the gruffest voice I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Have you ever met him? I haven't, no, I haven't. I've never been to Brazil. Okay. Actually, I have. I have been to Brazil. I walked in the north of, in the Amazonian area of Bolivia, a city called Cobija. You can walk across a bridge and you get into Brazil. And there was, I remember there was no, I got there and I didn't have a mask. And I was like, oh, crap, they're not going to let me pass. There was actually no one on either side. People just walk across. So there, there's quite a lot, you know, on these border areas, a lot of people are Brazilian on the Bolivian side and a lot of, people are Bolivian on yeah crossing the border so um but yeah I mean, it's just as I said it's an incredibly important moment for Latin America and you know I I was just today in the in the Congress here in here in Bolivia in La Paz and there was like palpable relief from a lot of congressmen saying that finally we can re-establish relations with our neighbor you know we are our neighbors there's so many issues we have in common and now there's a president who believes in constructing something together rather than a guy who's, you know, spent four years just destroying everything in sight, including his relationship with the United States, who could be helping him right now. Right. Speaking of Latin America, what else are you working on at Cassetron? What, what are their stories? Well, at the moment, uh, we've been really focused on Brazil. At the moment, Camila, my co-founder, is there in Sao Paulo. She was supposed to come on, but she's not feeling well. She's not feeling well. It's been a crazy few days, as you can imagine, just constant running around the city. And Brazil's a crazy country as well. And you can imagine the amount of press that there was and the amount of uh, of uh, elbow barging one has to do to get a, get a good spot. And it's, yeah, it's been, but she's been doing amazing coverage. You know, we've been live. We were live when Lula gave his acceptance speech. We were live on YouTube for that. And uh, that, that was going really well. And she's going to be there for, for a few more days. Uh, to continue reporting, including on the sort of reaction by Bolsonaro supporters and the reaction by Bolsonaro himself, which, which is very interesting. We're reporting on that today. The fact that he is basically accepting his defeat without actually saying he's accepting his defeat. And that goes back to what I said. The fact that if he had the support of the United States, I think his response would be very, very different. He'd be a lot more confident about just rejecting these results. But because of his own, the way he has purposely sabotaged his relationship to Joe Biden. Uh, he is obviously feeling a lot less confident um, now that he doesn't have their support in this. And what else do you think it's important for people to know about Lula? Well, I think Lula, you got to remember, Lula is both a pragmatic person, but also an incredibly passionate person. And that might seem contradictory, but it's not, I think. I think there's a lot of... He'll, over this presidency, he's going to make a lot of key decisions that are just have a huge impact on Latin America. Like, for example, I said, this proposal about a Latin American currency, something that you have to be a real visionary, really passionate to bring forward something like this. 
But there's also going to be times where he will make compromises with with Congress, which you know, in which his party does not have a majority. And to do that, you have to be an incredibly skilled politician. Uh, you have to be a statesman to be able to make that balance between governing and working with the opposition while also keeping your supporters energized. And that's what he did in his first term. That's why there's such an enthusiastic personal support for him. He was able to keep his supporters energized while also keeping markets happy, keeping Congress happy. And that's in, in stark contrast to, for example, President like Ivan Duque or Pedro Castillo in Peru, who have not been able to navigate that balance. And there's just been, frankly, chaos. Whereas Lula, Lula is a statesman and he is a leader. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see who's going to be taking leadership within Latin America. There's so, like for example, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador in Mexico has been taking a leadership role. I think Luis Arce in Bolivia has been, you know, pushing himself on the world stage. So there's so many different people who I think can contribute some really interesting things going forward. And what is happening in Bolivia right now? Besides the fact that they've issued an extradition for Bolsonaro. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually in Bolivia, there's some right-wing protests going on at the moment in one city of the country, which is Santa Cruz. Using the excuse of a national census, they want it brought forward by a year. But that's really an excuse to just, you know, once again, try to destabilize the country. And it's led by the governor there, Fernando Camacho, who people might remember as being one of the leaders of the coup in 2019. And in response, now social movements, I mean, just now I was speaking to one of my friends there, social movements, indigenous movements from the rural area of Santa Cruz are marching on the city. They say they want to take the the businesses owned by these elites that are funding these right-wing protests. They're going to surround the city until these protests stop. And I say protests, more a boss's lockout. That's a a very, it's a tactic that's used a lot in Bolivia, in that city, in Santa Cruz. Uh, a boss's lockout to try and and cause chaos within government. But since this is so regional, this this is not presenting a real challenge to to the national government. I think hopefully, if it you know if this goes on too long, it could begin to threaten Bolivia's economic progress, which has been I think one of the biggest stories in Latin America for this past couple of years. Bolivia has one of the lowest rates of inflation in the world just hovering around 1%. I think they'll end 2022 probably with an inflation rate of around 1%, which when you look at the rest of the region, including even the United States, is uh, an incredible achievement. Having low inflation, high growth economy, that's how President Luis Arce has managed to build things the past couple of years. So uh, yeah, people are really hoping that this doesn't threaten that. What has the impact been of the war in Ukraine? What has been the impact on Bolivia and Latin America? For a lot of Latin American countries, it's been incredibly negative, but a lot less so for Bolivia, because Bolivia has a state-owned, state-built fertilizer factory in the, in the town of Bula Bula. It was built by Evo Morales' government, and it was actually closed down by Añez's government, and then reopened by Luis Arce. And it's one of the largest fertilizer plants in the Americas, and that during this global fertilizer shortage, Bolivia has massively benefited from the huge rise in price in fertilizers. It also means that Bolivian producers, farmers, can still access fertilizer without problems. And the Bolivian government sells it to them at a cheaper price than they sell internationally, which means that Bolivia's food production has managed to keep up, has not faced the 
food insecurity that, for example, Brazil has faced. We're going to Brazil. Brazil had the same. Under Lula's government, they had this gas company, Petrobras. They had their own fertilizer factory, and that was closed after the coup against Dilma. And now Brazil has to import their fertilizer. That's a big factor in their inflation that they're facing right now and the increase in food insecurity that they're facing right now. They're having to buy now fertilizer off of Bolivia. You know, in Peru as well, there was strikes by farmers, campesinos, unions due to the fertilizer shortage in Peru. And Bolivia was able to step in and basically calm that down by supplying Peru with fertilizer. So that's a big reason, I think, for why Bolivia has managed to have almost no increase in inflation during this period of the Ukraine war. But in other countries, it's a completely other story. Uh, countries like Ecuador, for example, that have these problems of the fertilizer, but also Ecuador is one of the largest exporters in the world of bananas. One of their biggest markets was Russia. And now a huge section of their economy for a long time was just completely paralyzed because they couldn't get their produce to Russia due to the sanctions. Um, it's, it's having a devastating impact on a lot of Latin American countries. But Bolivia is the most resilient precisely because of the state-led model of, as they call it, the import substitution, industrialization, you know, building, building as much as possible within the country, not depending on imports. And that's why Bolivia has managed to stay strong despite the, the war in Ukraine. Wow, that's really interesting. Any final words, final thoughts, things you want people to know about? No, well, thanks for having me on, uh, Katie. Of course, uh, you know, you can find us, Kalsacha News, kalsachanews.com, uh, and on Twitter, at Kalsacha News. There, uh, we've got, yeah, we've got a lot of exciting projects coming up. Uh, we've obviously just launched our own podcast and show as well on, on YouTube and on Spotify. So make sure to check that out. And we're like three weeks away now from the, from the World Cup. I'm very excited. We're going to be launching, well, we haven't actually, we haven't announced this yet, but we're going to be launching a show around the, focusing on the South American teams at the World Cup. So we're, we're, we're really excited for that. So you just dropped an exclusive here on the Katie Helper show. You I broke did a bomb, <laughs> broke a bombshell. <laughs> bombshell. Wow. That's awesome. And really quickly, where are the different football players on this? Which football players are pro uh, right. versus uh <laughs> That's a very that's been a that's been a big topic of discussion because um the the large majority of Brazilian players are pro Bolsonaro, including Brazil's sort of you know, their leader on the pitch, which is Neymar, Neymar Jr. His case is a bit more, is a bit different because he supports Bolsonaro because basically Neymar was facing charges for tax fraud in Brazil and Bolsonaro just wrote that whole thing, his whole tax bill off. So since then, Neymar has been uh, a Bolsonaro supporter. I don't know if he actually is or if it's just for that reason. He, he had showed no signs of being very political before that. So it could be for that. But a lot of the players are, are evangelical Christian. And that's a big reason for, for example, their goalkeeper, Alison Becker, who's probably, I'd say, the best goalkeeper in the world. Uh, it's fantastic to watch, but he is an evangelical Christian. And he, he's converted his teammates, numerous teammates, to Christianity by baptizing them in the pools at their own mansion. <laughs> wow. So not only, yeah, not only himself, Bolsonaro supports, but he's been spreading it to the other teammates as well. And so, yeah, there are some exceptions. Um, I mean, the legendary, uh, you know, from, from many decades ago, Socrates, he was, uh, you know, just an openly socialist. He's one of Brazil's all-time great players. 
I remember when he went to play for um, for Fiorentina in Italy. So a journalist asked him, "Why did you come to Italy?" He said, "I want to learn to read Gramsci in original Italian." Oh wow! <laughs> so, and um, so yeah, so it's, it's it's not everyone. Yeah, not all footballistas. Hashtag <laughs> exactly. And then one question we got from Sparky. Is Lula still pro-Russia and pro-BRICS, or did the U.S. get to him? His stance on the Ukraine war has always been uh, quite clear to say that, you know, he, he opposes, um, you know, an attack on Ukraine, but the, the NATO, the United States, and the Ukrainian government itself holds a big responsibility for that. And so he's not, he's not, um, he's taking the same position as, say, Bolivia, which is a formal neutrality, but wanting to keep relations with Russia and work with Russia. And BRICS, I think BRICS is going to really reactivate now. Under Bolsonaro, there was less enthusiasm. But now I think yeah, it's, we, I think we're going to see a BRICS 2.0 with Lula really uh, you know, playing a much more active role in an alliance with uh, Russia, with China. And that's why I think the... Uh, why I, I don't like the, the, the claims that Lula is some sort of centrist or, you know, some sort of sellout because on these hugely critical questions like relations with China, like relations with Russia, he, you know, he's, he, he departs radically from uh, a pro-US government. And those are the sorts of questions that are going to be defining our uh, Latin America's future, these important geopolitical questions. And on that, uh, Lula is not in agreement with the United States, although he will try to have a constructive relationship with the United States. But where he feels he'll need to criticize them, he will. But he will definitely try to be a lot more diplomatic than Bolsonaro ever was. And do you think there's any risk of another corrupt case against Lula or a coup against Lula? I think there's 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 an attempt right now <laughs> among some Bolsonaro supporters, truck drivers blocking uh, some key highways even still now. And yeah, we just need to look at, at Bolivia to show that the the opposition doesn't just uh, pack up and go home necessarily. They will even if they perhaps take some time to retreat and reorganize they will come back at some point and the fact that he doesn't have a large majority in congress opens up another uh, danger uh, for the sorts of coup that we saw against dilma which was you know a legislative coup by the legislature uh, so i think these are all issues in which they have to to look on but i think for now the idea that for example the brazilian elites the business sector is going to be trying to destabilize lula that's not going to happen for now at least because Lula's not an unknown person. He's already governed. And businesses know that they can work with him and that they can, that last time, they thrived under him. Not because he gave them tax cuts or deregulation, but because he delivered a growing economy through infrastructure, etc. And a rising tide lifts all boats, and that includes the business sector. So I don't think they'll have any interest in creating chaos at the moment. That's not to say there couldn't be a clash further down the road. Well, thank you so much, Ali. Thank you very much, Katie. Thanks. Come back soon. Absolutely. Anytime. Great. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. 
please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. 